Welcome to the Sacramentalist Podcast, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Creighton McElveen. And today we are talking to Dr. Mark Allen. Dr. Allen got his PhD from Notre Dame and serves as a professor of biblical and theological studies in the Rowling School of Divinity at Liberty University, where he teaches a lot of courses in apologetics and public theology in their new theology PhD program. And on July 1st, he's going to be the interim pastor at Memorial Methodist Church in Appomattox, Virginia. He's co-authored two books, both with Dr. Joshua Chetro. Uh, Their first was called Apologetics at the Cross, and the most recent uh, publication is The Augustine Way, Retrieving the vision, retrieving a vision for the church's apologetic witness, which is the topic for our conversation today. Dr. Allen, welcome to the show. Good to see you. Thank you. It's good to see you too. It's good to meet Creighton, and it's good to catch up with you, Wesley. That's right. Yeah, listeners, uh, Dr. Allen was uh, was at Liberty when I was doing my undergrad in seminary there, and uh, and was actually the reader for my MDiv thesis. So we go way back. Hey, I, I preached at your ordination. <laughs> you did preach at my ordination. That's correct. It was a, it was an Anglican ordination in a Bap, in a Roman Catholic church called St. Thomas More, ironically, yeah. and uh, with a Baptist preacher. Yeah, very ecumenical affair. It was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah truly a, a blessing, a blessing. So, yeah, very excited about this book that you all have written. Our listeners know that we're big fans of St. Augustine, and, um, and so I think it'll be interesting to talk about some ways in which he speaks to our contemporary situation. But a lot of our listeners might hear the term apologetics that we've used a couple times and that's in the book's subtitle and immediately experience some kind of indigestion. I think many of us see... Yeah in both Catholic and Protestant circles, apologetics can become a kind of grift, thinking about groups like Answers in Genesis or Catholic Answers or something like that, where the the answers given are not necessarily intellectually robust. So how do you all understand the purpose of apologetics? And what do you mean when you describe St. Augustine as an apologist? Well, first of all, let me say I identify with you. Uh, I was a little shocked when my dissertation director wrote just a wonderful book on uh, interpreting the Old Testament uh, using Christian theology. And uh, in the opening pages, he said the last thing a Old Testament scholar would want to be called is an apologist. And uh, by the way, I was my uh, my degree was in Hebrew Bible. So basically I was like, uh-oh, what have I gotten myself into? But I think the perception is that if you're an apologist, you're probably trying to direct the data to the conclusion you've already made. And um, especially in a research institution, that is a no-no. And the other uh, problem is, you know, I was a pastor and when I try to use some of the apologetics that I u- learned in seminary, it just it just didn't seem to connect with uh, the suburban folks that I was ministering to and the things they were going to going through on a daily basis. So um, I think we see bad apologetics sometimes on YouTube and other places, and it scares us away. So, um, but apologetics is a rich and robust part of. Um, of the church history and especially the early church. And and basically, um, apologetics is to offer an an appeal uh, for the Christian faith and a defense of the Christian faith. So it it deals with why a person can believe. That's the defense of faith. And then um, 
why they should believe, and that's an appeal. But given the context of setting it up kind of like you did, I, I would want to style apologetics as just helping people find what they're seeking for. And so you're coming alongside and given um, reasonable arguments for why a person, um, for what a person's seeking and, and uh, where they might find it. And it, as a you know, as a surprise, it 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 involves the mind. It involves rationality for cert for certain for sure it does. But it also involves the whole person. So, Doctor Allen, sort of set within that context, then why is Saint Augustine a good model for the modern day apologist? Well, he's a good model for a lot of things, isn't he? Sure. Uh, arguably. Arguably, he's the gr greatest post-biblical theologian, uh, and he's cast this long shadow over Protestantism. Look at his influence on Luther, Augustinian monk, uh, Calvin, his doctrine of election and grace, or uh, his uh, the shadow he casts on Catholics with um, St. Anselm, St. Thomas Aquinas, Pascal, of all received sort of the Augustine way uh, for their time. Um, also secular philosophers, uh, Heidegger, Camus, Derrida, all wrestled. Uh, people might not know that, but they all, all wrestled with Augustinian uh, thoughts. So first of all, we might say he's, he's uh, in the air. Augustine already has a seat at the table, all right? And uh, whether he's acknowledged or not, uh, he is there, and in many cases paying the bill for uh, as as uh, uh, Smith uh, James K. Smith uh, says. But uh, not only that, um, when Josh Chatro and I looked into Augustine, we one of the th questions we had was maybe this pre-modern saint would have something to say in a postmodern world. Not that modernity didn't happen, not that a lot of uh, church history didn't happen, but perhaps he would have say something to say to us. And also, you know, he, he sort of uh, bookends the Christendom. So uh, when we look at him on this side of uh, Christendom, we think, well, maybe, maybe we could see Augustine this side of Christendom, uh, in, a, in a late modernity, maybe we can see Augustine with new eyes and receive him for today. So we think that because of these th some of these things, he, he connects with, with where we are today as, as a culture. I think also, um, if we think of post-Christendom, now the, the analogy does break down some, and there aren't perfect. And, and anytime you're receiving a saint, it's not like it's just, here he is plop him down, uh, you're going to have to do some work in reception. But um, he lived, and and actually the city of God was written after the sack of Rome. So here you'd had this um, incredible influence uh, on the Greco-Roman culture uh, from Christianity, right? So you've got this these Christian times, right? And But with the sack of Rome there was a resurgence of paganism, which had never really left. 
and a pluralistic paganism was resurging. And actually many in, in this paganistic Greco-Roman pluralism were blaming Christians for the ills that had happened to their society. And you, you can obviously see in this epochal change that we're in that, that some of this, there's some really many ton, touch points, resurgence of paganism, pluralism, uh, the blaming of Christianity for a lot of the ills. And so because of that, uh, we feel like Augustine is uh, really contemporary uh, in many ways for us today. Um, I think also he appeals uh, so much to the heart and the mind and to the whole person. And I think today people are, they're looking for healing, they're looking for hope, they're looking for uh, happiness. And these are the kinds of things that St. Augustine in his apologetic, in his ministry, that he appeals to. So we feel that he uh, he's a saint for today. When we wrote the first book, Apologetics at the Cross, we began to see uh, Augustine had, he had something for us today. And so that's why we sort of dove in and, and uh, learned more about uh, Augustine. And is apologetic. So. And I think that that opens us to another question kind of about your methodology with Augustine, because obviously there's a huge corpus of, yeah. of literature to wade through. And you all choose to kind of limit your focus on city of God and confessions. And I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with the nature of both works. City of God is kind of an obvious and intuitive choice, uh, given the nature of it. But yeah. confessions might surprise some people that it would be uh, viewed as a sort of apologetics text. Yeah. So what unique benefits does confessions offer us in a contemporary discussion on apologetics? Yeah, I think this was a surprise. Um, and the way I, we actually got there was by reading the city of God first. Obviously we read confessions, but reading and really getting into this, the city of God, which probably started writing it, Augustine probably started writing it around 412, and it took him uh, over 10 years, over a decade to write. But uh, confessions was written in 397. And so um, once though you read his sort of cultural analysis of the Greco-Roman world, uh, the social imaginary of, of, of his, the people in his culture, and you watch him critique it and then present a better way, a better story. So, you know, in one through 10 of the city of God, he uh, critiques the Roman culture. And then through 11 through 22, he tells the Renarratizes the world basically using the Christian narrative. Okay, so where did he get that idea, and 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 how did he arrive at the methodology? If you go back to Confessions and you begin to trace his journey, uh, he was journeying through the Greco-Roman world as an individual. He was um, on the fast track to success. Uh, you know, it, it was like uh, we're today we're trying to uh, accomplish the American dream. Well, he he was he had a Roman dream that his his father, uh, Patrick and mother, Monica, as well, had instilled into him. So he was on this fast track, leaving the backwoods Christianity behind 
uh, entering in elite circles of education, of uh, vocation. But not only that, he, he journeyed through, uh, left Christianity, um, not completely, but he left it behind. He was deconstructing. Um, he was in Manichaeism for nine years, okay, which was a, a vastly influential uh, religion, at least especially in elite circles. And, you know, if you think of Star Wars, uh, Manichaeist, or, uh, you know, perhaps a very rationalist faith, uh, James K. Smith compares them to today's uh, new atheists, very rationalistic. So he journeyed through that for nine years. Um, he tried the academics, which, uh, you know, uh, they doubted everything. So he tried that posture. I'll just, I'll be agnostic. I'll just doubt everything and question everything. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, Platonism uh, just didn't bring healing to his soul. And so you can see that he is taking this journey, um, this sort of deconstruction, and then he recounts his why he came back. Um, Ambrose helped him to see that it was, you know, you it, it was intellectually robust. And um, then putting himself in the church, he began to experience healing and, and to grow in his faith. So in my opinion, and Josh's opinion, as a pastor, he's doing apologetic for his congregation. That's not all he's doing, right? He's doing spiritual formation. He's showing them how to live in the biblical narrative. Uh, but also, but but included in that, it seems to us that he's doing an apologetic. He's showing, yeah, I went there. I was socialized into this um, take partaking of the uh, uh, the fruit, the apple, uh, the pear. In his case, you know, I was socialized into that, and I went that direction toward the elite and toward the accomplished. I've been through these religions, and I've assessed it, but. But there was still in his heart, how does he begin the book? The heart is restless until it finds rest in you. And what he's saying is that it's more than just an intellectual journey. This is a journey of the heart. And um, and I've gone the, the way. And as a pastor, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, recounting this to you. And one thing early in my ministry, I, um, you know, I... I needed other spiritual resources than my tradition provided. And I turned to Henry Nowen uh, as a pastor. And you know, I think it might've been uh, in The Wounded Healer, maybe where he said uh, that that which is most personal is most universal. And I think when, when Augustine shares his story, it connects with us. It connected with his congregation. And so for that reason, we, we think it's an apologetic. And uh, like I said, it's not just an apologetic, but apologetics aren't just apologetics. They're integrated with theology. They're integrated with our spiritual journey. They're integrated with, uh, apologetics is integrated with, you know, our quests and our seeking. So hope that wasn't too long of an answer <laughs> no that's great and i think i well i think there's a lot about augustine that 
is so relevant and appropriate. I mean, I was just reading the the Christopher Stendhal article from way back about um, how Augustine, it's kind of through Augustine that we get this idea of introspection and self mm-hmm. um, and that's so uh, universal in the Western tradition, at least. And um, and I've been thinking about that because like I'm, I'm leading a, discu- a book discussion at my parish on a book called The Genesis of Gender by Abigail Fable. And, you know, she's an academic and her work is academic, but she includes a lot of personal narrative and autobiography in the work itself. And I've kind of noticed that, I mean, when I was being raised and taught to write and stuff, it was like you never talk about yourself in a paper. But that seems to be kind of the opposite trend now. So with this rise of a kind of awareness of our enmeshment and a, a, a more encouragement to reflect, uh, Augustine seems like a great model to introduce into conversations like this because he did it so well and we wouldn't even have that impulse without him, at least not the way that we have it. Yes, uh, absolutely. I, I think that is something that's very, um, very important. In fact, when I grew up through um, uh, apologetics and I studied under one of the premier uh, evangelical po- apologists of the day, that part of apologist was considered so lightweight um, that, you know, the personal. And and I think that created a problem uh, because it, it, it there was a lack of integration between the, the intellectual reflection and the longings of our heart. And Augustine, the cool thing about him, he, he turns inward and there's an awareness of the self but the, but he ultimately discovers the truth outside of himself in an embodied savior and in 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 the church and the in embodiment so it was not an escape for augusta in fact that was his biggest gripe with the platonists was their pride uh and their um they felt that they can totally contemplate themselves to God. But God came down in in flesh and blood and revealed himself. And so it was this beautiful uh, connection between the inner person and the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Yeah. So. I, I love that approach. Because part part of my some of my background is is in um, like phenomenology and philosophy, and so I think of like John Paul II's personalism and how successful he is, sort of engaging with these questions, turning into the self, making it personal, enmeshed, but then going and it's that's not the end of the story, but it's certainly yeah. the entry point for a lot of people into that story. Yeah, and it's uh, it, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really cool thing that Augustine is doing with confessions. It's it's amazing, you know, you, Jesus coming on the scene and in the Sermon on the Mount, dealing so much with the secrets of the heart. You know that that with the coming of the new covenant, uh, the emphasis was always there. I mean, we know from Jew, Deuteronomy uh, that the idea of the circumcision of the heart. Uh, it was it didn't start with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, it's been embedded in the, into the Old Testament, but Jesus bringing that to fruition uh, in his own person and and addressing you know the woman at the well and her thirst, 
um, the um, the idea, you know, of come to me and and you'll find what you're thirsting for. It's this and out of your being, you know, will, will come rivers of life and um, yet an embodied savior. So it, it, he didn't he didn't separate the two. Uh, and and uh, yeah, and I guess it's just picking up on a biblical on a biblical motif, right? A biblical truth, um, and 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 showing us how it is an apologetic. Yeah. So let's maybe jump into something a little technical. Um, not not maybe not everyone's aware of the sort of intramural debate between you know within apologetics. Uh, but on one side, we have the sort of evidential or classical apologetics. The other side, we have presuppositional. Um, could you explain kind of briefly what those terms mean and then sort of enlighten us as to how St. Augustine might help us bridge the gap yeah. between the two? Yeah, without getting myself in trouble. I mean, <laughs> that's my big goal in this, you know, in this segment. Um, I, I really came out through more of a classical evidentialist um, I, I had one course by one professor who his the whole semester his course was one long argument uh and it started with logic and um you know moved to the proof of the existence of god so when you think of classical or evidentialist it's sort of a for the particularly for cl the classical methodology is a two-step First, you prove that there is a God, there is a theistic being, and next you you prove and demonstrate that 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 God was revealed through Jesus Christ, and He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you use uh, in the first step a lot of very rational, uh, logical arguments that there is a God, and then the second step um, is usually more evidential plus rational rationalism so you show evidence uh for the resurrection of christ for the uh, veracity of the statements of christ about who god was so it's sort of a classical is a two-step evidentialist would see themselves as as more of a one-step uh, they might start their argument from uh proving the resurrection of jesus christ might be one place that they start now that is a i just gave you like a you know uh, a few couple minutes a description of something that I a whole semester we we did but I think the classical evidentialist uh, has more a little more confidence in our rationality our ability to reason and to come to conclusions that yes there is a, a God and yes Jesus Christ is that God who is revealed Father Son and Holy Spirit uh, now the second presuppositional is where I'm going to get. I don't. Want to, <laughs> there are so many takes on what presuppositionalism is, okay? And I I have friends that will say um, I'm presuppositional, and then you'll say, but are you this? Well, I'm not that kind of presuppositional. And so I think originally Cornelius Van Til. Uh, started this quest toward presuppositional thinking because it would be a it would be a rationally consistent apologetic for reformed theology, and I don't know if that was a successful project, but I do know that out of it a lot of good apologetics 
have, have come about. You think of John Frame um, and Carnell and uh, Francis Schaeffer or others. And in presuppositionalism, you basically presuppose, presuppose it, uh, the veracity of the gospel and a Trinitarian framework for thinking. So we can't even rationalize, we can even think without thinking in a, um, a gospel-centered Trinitarian framework. And so it's basic apologetic, uh, most, the most important part of its apologetic, I believe, is the way it uh, critiques other thought worldviews and other uh, presuppositions. So it so it goes to another person. If you were doing apologetics with another person, you would just ask very good questions to sort of undermine uh, their view and uh, create space for them to doubt uh, their worldview and uh, to maybe to become more aware of their presuppositions. And then basically you present the gospel. And the gospel is true, right? So, so you can present it because it is true. And, um, you know, sometimes, and, and like I said, I don't mean to offend any of my friends. Uh, people have looked at uh, our book and said, hey, that's presuppositional. So, you know, it, we're, 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 we're uh, together on this. But, um, you know, I think Spurgeon is often... You don't have to defend the Bible. You just, it's like a lion. You just let it out of its cage, right? So um, undermine uh, the other person's um, worldview and create some doubt and some space and then let the lion out of the cage, okay? And um, there are many good gains from both classical, evidentialist, uh, presuppositional, uh, but I don't think Augustine, he was more nimble. He was more pastoral. And he, he was um, doing apologetics at the very, at the ground level with people. And so his basic methodology in, let's say, the cities of God, is he would do an eminent critique. He would critique, and then, as I said earlier, in uh, books one through ten, he, he undermined, he critiqued. The social, Charles Taylor Ward, you know, the social imaginary of the Greco-Roman world. And then in the second part of the book, he, he gave the biblical narrative, but he was inviting um, the Greco-Roman world into conversion. So he wasn't just trying to defeat what they believed. He was, he was telling them a better story and getting them to imagine uh, the world life in this, uh, in this biblical Christian narrative, the, the kind of narratival thing that, uh, you know, Van Hooser talks about it, um, uh, N.T. Wright talks about it. And so that second half of the book is telling a better story. Augustine, though, along the way would use ad hoc arguments. You know, he would say, wow, if the re resurrection didn't happen and it has changed the world this much, then it's a miracle that it could change this world this much 
without it ever happening. Okay, so he would he would use these kind of ad hoc uh, arguments, but mostly it was a critique and a re-narratization of the world showing how their story would fit better in God's story. Okay, the Greco-Roman story actually functions, uh, it would function better and makes more, is more exp explainable within the larger story uh, of, of God. And, and he also appealed as well, we can talk about this later um, as well as he, he appealed to the desires of the heart. Um, and so I, I see Augustine, uh, you know, um, there are presuppositional elements in Augustine. There are classical or evidential, but his driving force was his congregation, uh, where he was at his moment in history. And he was very aware of his context. And that's what we're, we're saying, you know, our apologetics needs to have a heightened awareness of our, our moment that, that we're living in and where our people are. I've never loved the, that intramural debate in apologetics. Cause yeah. I always feel like uh, in a sense, both approaches, like you've been saying, have, have a good deal of merit. And when you're actually on the, on the ground level doing pastoral work with people, you can't possibly just say, well, I'm an evidentialist, so I'm approaching it this way. Yes. There's always this, like I just had a meeting with someone recently who's, who's struggling with the moral problem of evil, you know, and, and, so, yeah, there are these meta questions we're asking. You know, I was I was doing exactly what you're saying. I was asking a lot of questions. OK, well, what do you think about Jesus? You know, and actually, interestingly, she said she finds Jesus to be a little wimpy, um, which I thought was really interesting. It was kind it of a, it was a really interesting uh, kind of entryway into her mindset. Right. But then there's also the personal things, you know, well, why is this a problem that you personally are experiencing? And so that's going to be a little different. We're going to tailor that part of the conversation a little more specifically to what you are going through and, and the stock answers of all the great, you know, answers to the problem of evil are not going to necessarily be super persuasive on that level. And so you have to be able to kind of move in between different layers of the conversation in order to effectively reach someone. And, and I think you're exactly right that Augustine does this well because he is pastoral first and foremost. That was uh, a beautiful example. I think, um, the mo one of the most important things we can do in apologetics is ask genuine questions, honest questions, not gotcha questions, not questions that lure them. And look, this is the thing I loved about your conversation is who would have thought that the per person you're talking to thought Jesus was wimpy. Right. 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 I mean, you don't go into a conversation thinking that the person has contemplated that, you know, and and then to 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 realize that. Um, can open up so many doors of, uh, you know, of, of, of listening, learning, but also sharing mm. uh, Christ in a way that, that actually relates to where she, she is. Uh, I remember early on um, in ministry, I don't know where I read this or, but um, one of the, one of the problems that young um interns who doctor they're going to be doctors right make is they they want to label something identify it and label it too soon and because once you identify and label it you can control it 
and they don't take the time to diagnose. And if you don't diagnose, you can't apply the healing balm, right? It's the same thing with the gospel. Uh, that person is actually living in God's world and God is alive and that pain, particular pain in, in their heart, or their particular expression of fallenness or sin, um, it, the, the bomb of the gospel will meet them at that very place. And you, you know that, we know that's the case. Just look at the difference in the way Jesus dealt with Nicodemus and the woman of the well. I mean, it, it was because he knew them as persons and the same gospel apply to their lives in different ways. The one he says, um, your good is not so good that you don't need the Messiah. And the other one, he said, your bad isn't so bad that the Messiah can't save you. And, and, but it was the same gospel, but he understood the heart. Um, and any, uh, and then we, when we do, we can apply the balm of the gospel to the, to, to the real need. And I think that's what Augustine was so superb is understanding people. Yeah. Yeah. In chapter three of the book, you all focus, I think, on the emerging genre of deconversion autobiographies. And I think this is directly uh, tied to what we've just been talking about. Um, the, the example you give is uh, Rhett and Link from the popular YouTube show, Good Mythical Morning, who who kind of publicly deconstructed. But I mean, we can count. Yeah so many of those stories and and that's just celebrities i mean i feel like when i look back at my upbringing and the people that i went to church with growing up i mean like so many of them have gone through something similar maybe not as publicly and maybe not as introspectively but they have a very similar trajectory um and it's it's i think probably going to continue to to be like this with the rise of the nuns and the ex-evangelical uh sort of blocks um and so this has become a topic that i feel kind of passionate about a little bit um walk through this some in my own experience uh kind of being raised in a similar background as, as some of these folks and um so i guess what are some aspects of augustine's work that might be able to speak to this phenomenon and that might help us shepherd people who find themselves in that kind of spiral of deconstructing yeah i i think um i identify with you uh especially i think when i think of parents and grandparents uh, who, you know, maybe their strong faith is strong, but they're looking at people they love uh, deconstruct. And, and this is a real, you know, a real issue and a heartbreaking issue in many ways. Um, I, I do want to make a pitch, if I could. Uh, my colleague, Jack Carson, here at um, Liberty, and my co-author, good friend, Josh Chantreau, um, are, are, they're coming out with a book this summer with Brazos called Surprised by Doubt. And it goes directly at this issue and really has as a target, the person's considering uh, deconstruction. And so it'll be a wonderful it's a book when, you know, when it's released. But I think for Augustine, one of the things I would, uh, encourage a person to do is read confessions. Uh, I think you may be surprised by his doubt. Um, the fact that this saint went through sexual temptations and pressures 
He went through, he lived in a time of meritocracy in which he tried to uh, climb the ladder. Uh, he had real doubts about the uh, mass of, of uh, Christian faith. Like when I, I don't mean the mass, I mean, just the weight. Is it, is Christianity thick enough to, to live on in the, in the world, you know, that he, that he was experiencing. So I used to say, you know, one of the things, uh, read, read confessions and take a look at it. Um, if a person that's deconstructing, I think Augustine would, um, ask them to consider what a human is. Okay. I, I know the first thing we think is who is God and that, that, that is a great place to start, but maybe we need to start with what is a human, and um, and maybe the person who seek who's thinking about deconstructing could ask themselves, um, who am I, and and what what am I seeking? This is a classic uh, question that we actually in the book uh, we have an account of uh, Sarah Coakley asking uh, as, as someone who's um, a, not a believer, who's, and she just asks him an existential question. He's looking for a rational, very rational, silver bullet proof. And instead she says, well, what are you seeking? And Augustine would say, let me, what you are is, what humans are, is we are lovers and Augustine went back over and over again to what's the greatest commandment? Love God, love others in God. That's the way he would put it. Love God, love others in God. And um, so he, because he understood that the quest, the true human quest in life, what we are seeking is to be loved and to love God. And, and um, so we begin with this idea of who am I and what do I really, at the deepest level, what am I seeking? Um, I think we need to, this, I don't know, this may be a challenge, but Augustine would tell us we need an ocular change. And what is that? We need a change in the way we see the world. Um, and he would say, we need to see the world through Christ and his cross. And why? Because that's the place of love. That, that the, mo the person who lived on this earth, who was the most human, gave his life for others. And in doing that was the most human. Uh, we, we're living in a time that says, you know, self-actualize. That's that's the way, uh, you know, look inside yourself and see your truth. Um, uh, you know, be yourself. And Augustine would say, we need a shift in, in the way we see the world and we need to see it through the cross. And the way we see ourselves, uh, we need to um, humble ourselves to the to the revelation of Christ, and that we are um, we were made to love. We were made to lay down our lives, 
and um, we find healing and uh, through uh, Christ re reordering our disordered loves. So we're seeking money, we're seeking this marriage partner. Uh, I see it especially at a Christian university. When I f find the right spouse, you know, and my soulmate, we're seeking, you know, uh, our 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 meaning in that place. Uh, maybe next it would be children. Next it would be career. Next it would be a, a retirement. You know, there are just these other things, and and uh, we what we're really seeking is the healing of Christ who will reorder our loves toward God and toward others. And so um, I would say um, that listen to Christ and integrate, before jumping out, try integrating uh, the cross of Christ, the love of Christ into the deepest places of your being. And, you know, it's a, that might sound hard, and so someone might want to try something else. But I think that's what Augustine would tell us, is the more he deeply that he integrated the truth of Scripture, uh, the truth that comes through the church, that we, uh, we become alive. And now here's a... So these are hard things, right? Um... I'm going to give one harder. I would tell the person who's thinking about deconstructing is turn to the church. Augustine would say it. Um, Christ dwells in the church. That's the place that he inhabits. Uh, he's on his throne, but through the spirit of God, Christ is in his church. And I hear so often, well, I like Christ, but I don't like the church. And I, we can understand that, right? I mean, we've we've all been uh, at times wounded by the church, but the church is the place where we are formed, uh, the place where we meet the living Christ, the place where we um, experience the reality of the body of Christ and the head and the body's head. Um, the other thing that I would say, and hopefully, that, and like I say, these are some hard things, uh, but. Before you jump, consider knowing where you're jumping, what you're getting into. I see people who are deconverting, and it's the thrill of leaving. It's the it's the the, the first rush of absolute freedom. But um, what I would encourage someone to do is use the same rigor that you're using to cr critique Christianity to critique the waters you're jumping into. Okay. Um, and uh, I think the last thing that I would say, I found this as an old guy. Um, I started pastoring you know, at 28. I'm 61 now. Um, perseverance is a beautiful thing. And on, the, on those moments when we are most ready to walk away from the faith are the opportunities for the most growth into the depths of the reality of the faith. And I, I'm serious about that. I've had some unanswered prayers in my life, and Josh Etro, my friend, helped me through it, in which I was numb. And I all I could do was read the Psalms to God. And I could barely do that. 
and but to persevere the beauty that you discover in the deep reality of the faith and the way that uh, God opens your mind in an ocular way through the cross to see things that um, people don't persevere and then they do not experience, I think, the beauty of the, the Christian faith. Um, it is, according to uh, Augustine, it is a journey and it is a, uh, a walk uh, through life. And um, I don't know, uh, Father Wesley, if that, if that helps, um, I hope it does. I think it absolutely does. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, all those things are are good advice, and I think we should be listening to them, and this ties into the question we're going to ask you in a second, but I think we should, as, as pastors and priests, should be listening to, to that advice and, and figuring out ways we might be able to encourage people to, to make those hard decisions, but leaving should be hard. You know, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be an easy thing to just give it up and walk away, and so asking a lot of someone who's making a, a life altering decision, I think is, is a good and healthy thing that we, that we should do. Um, challenging their challenging them to really honestly assess what's going on and what they're, what, what alternatives they're weighing. Um, Tim Keller, right. Doubt your doubt, I think is yeah. what he says. Yeah. 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 I think that's um, what we should do. I, I also think we should never give up on the person once they, if they step away keep on seeking, keep on praying, uh, be there, mm-hmm. um, be the one that's still there when maybe they find out things sour a bit. Uh, I don't, you know, I'm, uh, not, I don't want people to experience that and I'm not waiting around like a vulture, you know, uh, but I'm, but, but be there, uh, prodigals come home they do. And, uh, and, and I think God might use this in their, Augustine did, right? He did. And, um, and, and so we, 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 like Monica, we keep praying, we keep hoping that they'll come home. So, yeah. So, I mean, besides the fact that you've had, you know, been a, a scholar and teacher, um, I mean, you've served as a pastor, and you can hear that. You can you can kind of understand um, that you've approached this uh, practically in a in a pastoral context. Uh, so, within that context, for for pastors or uh, other clergy that are listening, um, how can we kind of use the type of apologetics you're advocating for in the book within those ministries? How how can we how can we put it into practice? Yeah, I I think. Um... Father Creighton, that was probably one of the greatest encouragements or uh, compliments you could pay me that there's a pastoralness. Uh, but, you know, I think this, let me just give a commercial for education that um, I think we need to rethink what it means to um, to ref- do theological education. And it's not just a purely uh, intellectual pursuit. Um I think education may be, you know, like the Tin Man. It needs it needs a heart, uh, but like the Scarecrow, the heart needs to be connected to the brain, 
And I think we need to be more robust in our intellectual pursuits. And in we will be if they connect to our whole being. And I think our brains, if we're lovers, our brains were given to us to love better and to think. And that's a part of, of education. And it needs to be a part of education for ministers, but in general, Christian education. Um, but I, I think that um, some of these things are going to be, I think, just simple down to earth. Uh, but maybe if we think in terms of reimagining these things in light of apologetics and um, integration of these things with apologetics. But the first thing I would say that a pastor should do uh, who wants to become, you know, wants the congregation to become uh, better at this Augustinian way is to is to focus on spiritual formation and not see apologetics as separate as another another category. Okay, now that that's a result of the university, right? We we have departments, we have categories, and I think don't separate. Um, the, 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 the liturgies, the taking of the sacraments, the confession, the preaching of the scripture, the, the praying the Psalms together in the congregation, in the ecclesia, these are equipping apologists. Um, and so I think to, to reunite spiritual formation and the church and apologetics together. And I think, um, I've had to do some thinking recently, and we'll might mention this later, but on the totus, the idea of totus Christus in Augustine. But uh, the, the, the pastor needs to rest in the fact that Christ is the true shepherd of the flock. And connecting people to Christ, and part of the way we do that, according to Augustine, is praying the Psalms together. Uh, listening to the Psalms together. We are connected to our mediator uh, through, so this idea of formation, but not just formation as individuals, but formation as a congregation, being formed together. So I think that's important. The other thing is, I think you gotta do this um, in the moment we're in and understanding the social imaginaries. That's a Charles Taylor book, but it, I mean, a, a concept, um, but, just understanding where the congregation lives and breathes and lives their, you know, their daily lives. The assumptions that businesses make about uh, why they're in business. The uh, art, uh, Netflix, which old people, I don't know if everybody does Netflix, old people does, we do Netflix. Uh, looking at, you know, um, if, if you're watching uh, Ted Lasso, you're able to do an imminent critique and say, yeah, I see where this is substantially missing uh, the grounding of the Christ on the cross, right? But then I also see some beautiful values of forgiveness and, and generosity of spirit and support. And so you're able to understand and critique social imaginaries and help the congregation to become more aware of the way that the, the, you know, I mentioned Smith a few times, 
but the cultural liturgies are forming them and showing them how our Christian liturgies are forming us in a different story. Now, I'm a Baptist, and the first time that I went to Anglican Church, uh, and my son, by the way, has uh, uh, been uh, an Anglican and uh, studying for the ministry, and um, I realized, wait a minute, Sunday morning, they're restoring me. They're, that that I've been living in one story out here, and they're not rejecting all of that story, but redeeming that story through through the gospel and through these liturgies. And so, helping people to become aware, and you know, pastors becoming aware of the social imaginaries. Um, you know, I think if you can read Charles Taylor, read Charles Taylor's Secular Age. But Tara Isabella Burton's Strange Rites, my eyes were just like shocked uh, when as she kind of critiqued our culture, Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. These will help you and me uh, to, to understand the imaginaries where our, our people are living in. And But not just the negative critique. Uh, Justin Bailey's book, uh, Reimagining Apologetics, or Josh Etro's book, um, telling a better story. So how can we uh, help people see the good and the beautiful and uh, live into God's uh, pervasive, and this is a way we term it in the book, um, Augustine's view of the pervasive goodness, truth, and beauty embedded in creation, helping people see that and understand why it's there and how it reveals God. Um, so, um, I, I think, uh, pastors, we really have to understand the idea of the social imaginary that, and, and that our congregations living in and help them to be aware. And we become aware so that we can tell the story in a way it connects. Um, there's many other, uh, things, uh, helping people. I think this deconversion thing too helping people to understand that um, the Christian life is a journey uh, and Christ is the pathway and that we are never complete. And this is not home, but we're traveling home. And if you look at the beginning of confessions, our hearts are restless, right? So they find rest in you. You'll notice that Augustine is never fully at rest. He finds rest, absolutely, but he's always on the quest. And at the end of the book, he's quoting Matthew, keep seeking, you know, keep, uh, keep knocking, uh, keep finding. And Charles Taylor, taught, uh, not Charles Taylor, but Charles Matthews, uh, professor at UVA, who's just an Augustine scholar, in, one, in an article talks about the open-endedness of confessions, that scribes wanted to put amen on it. And Augustine is like, so be it. I'm still on a quest. I'm still seeking. And we're not home. I think that posture, uh, the reality of that posture for your congregation is very important. They haven't arrived. We won't arrive until we're home. And so uh, Augustine 
styled it like this, we are happy in hope. Okay, we're happy in hope. It's almost like the concept of C.S. Lewis of joy. You know, the desiring of the joy, the desiring uh, that we have in our hearts. So, um, so you and you know, persuading with the whole person. If you've come up through my, if you're if you're an old guy like me, um, you would have read books uh, like James Dobson's Emotions. Can you trust them? And yeah, I mean, there's something wonderful. I never, I'm like, I'm a Baptist. And the last thing I liked about being a Baptist was the manipulative altar call at the end. I mean, I was stone cold. You are not going to manipulate my emotions. Okay. So there's something I like about that. But, but I think in the overreaction, we miss this deeper core of the affections that Jonathan Edwards you know, uh, appealed to is this deeper part of our, of our being. And I think pastors, we minister to the whole person, um, not just, you know, mind to mind exchange. Yes. But, but heart to heart uh, ministry. So anyway, I think, um, yeah, I don't want to, I don't know how much more time we've got, but I can talk more. <laughs> if, um, could I give you, I mean, do I have time to like, can I give you an Augustine quote? Please. Okay. I think this is cool. So Augustine, uh, he, in context, he gives this wonderful um, apologetic sermon. It's not all apologies apologetics, but he was aware that there were pagans in the congregation, right? And so he's lacing apologetics throughout the, the, the sermon. But at one point, he dismisses the pagans, and the pagans leave. And he just talks very directly to the congregation. This is what he says. I think it's awesome. I've already said to you yesterday, brothers and sisters, and I say it again now, and I'm always begging you to win over those who haven't yet believed by lead, leading good lives. Leading good lives. Otherwise, you too, I fear, will have believed to no purpose. I beseech you all, in the same way as you take pleasure in the word of God, so to express that pleasure in the lives you lead. Let God's word please you, not only in your ears, but in your hearts too. Not only in your hearts, but also in your lives, so that you may be God's household, acceptable in his eyes and fit for every good work. I haven't the slightest doubt, brothers and sisters, that if you all live in a manner worthy of God, the time will very soon come when none of those who have not yet believed will remain in unbelief. Ah, that is beautiful. And what he's saying is this integration, integrating the truth, the beauty, the word of God that we love and we long for into our hearts, into our lives, transforming us so that we are living it out. And uh, he was optimistic, you know, uh, that what it would what would happen. But maybe um, maybe if this apologetic 
uh, were engaged today, and we would emphasize the spiritual formation in the ecclesia. Uh, who knows what we might we might see? I love that. And I know listeners are going to laugh at me for bringing up Hugh of St. Victor, but he was called Alter Augustinus, who was, you know, mm. second Augustine. And, um, mm. and he has this beautiful treatise on Noah's Ark where he talks about how the church is corporately is the Ark in which God dwells among the people. But every Christian is a microcosm of the church. And yeah. so we should construct mm. a bridal chamber in the heart, he says, to let our groom in so that he can he can take up dwelling with us. And I think that there's something beautiful about that. We just talked with Dr. Hans Borsma recently about, about reading scripture and, um, and how this way of approaching the text is so different in early Christian and medieval Christian piety than it is for most of us today. And this idea that, that we the, almost the eating metaphors, you know, we, we chew on the scriptures, we swallow the scriptures, they become part of us. And then, as they become part of us, we begin to take that on and take that out into the world. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's very important. So it seems like some of the best apologetic work we can do is to allow ourselves to be transformed. Yes, absolutely. I, I love that. I, um, I, I've seen it in my own life. Um, my, um, yeah. Uh, my mom bought me a, a saying one time uh, on a plaque to put on the wall that, um, you know, I'm so anxious that when I'm not worried, I get nervous. Um, I had anxiety issues uh, and I'm not okay. You know, I'm not making a statement about, I'm not, there, there are some issues that are clinical. Okay. And I'm not making that, any assertions. I'm just giving a personal testimony that um, people who know me now would say that is not something that marks my life. Um, I found that casting my anxieties on Jesus um, has, has, has brought me calmness and comfort. And, you know, but it doesn't, it's come over, you know, I said, started a church when I was a 28, I'm 61. It's, you know, over 30 years of seeing the inner person transformed and uh, changed um, that I think is, is uh, what can serve as a beautiful apologetic for people today who, you know, we struggle as, as a people with aloneness and anxiety and and um, I think Christ truly can can help us, um, and in 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 healing our souls. Because um, I think okay, I don't want to say that it's all a, just a psychological issue. You know, it is sin and disordered loves, but Christ can help us um, put to reorder our loves so that they're in the right place. And so that we live fully as as uh, in a flourishing way as as humans, uh, full, fully engaged humans. Wow, a lot to think about and yeah. meditate and chew on. Yeah, yeah. Um, to kind of 
as we kind of come to a close, I wanted to ask a couple of what we're calling rapid fire questions okay. just so that people can get to know you a little better. Um, so first rapid fire question, where did you grow up? I grew up in Raynell, West Virginia. And you think we're a town of uh, 2000 when I lived there and it's less now, one stoplight. But believe it or not, in the back in the 70s and before, the largest lumber mill in the world was in Raynell, West Virginia, Meta River Lumber Company. You can look it up. And um, but they sold out in the 70s to Georgia Pacific. But so you can imagine the town lumberjacks, blue collars, uh, blue collar. Both my grandpas were coal miners, um, you know, and and uh, so I grew up in a sort of a, a rough uh, you know, blue collar world, but it was wonderful too. In some ways it was like Mayberry. Of course I give these, okay. Who knows this generation want Mayberry, a quaint, a quaint town where you knew everybody and you could ride your bicycle and be, have, you know, and be safe. Um, love it. Love it. My, uh, maternal family's from Belling, Bellington, Bellington, West Virginia. Um, so not too far. Yeah, it's it's uh, beautiful, beautiful. It's area. a wonderful place to grow up. So, yeah, I loved it. What's the best book you've read this year so far? And by best, that's obviously subjective, but you know that is subjective. And well, it's subjective, but I've I have to read so many now that I'm teaching more PhD seminars, and they're wonderful. So many wonderful books. I think the most relevant to what I've talked about today would be biblical critical theory. Uh, by Chris Watkin, um, you know, I think it's, he takes an, an Augusta, it goes through the whole biblical narrative and does sort of some of the stuff that we've talked about today. Uh, it's an Augustinian approach. And so I think that's been a really good book. Right now I'm enjoying reading uh, Oliver O'Donovan's The Desire of the Nations. And I love Oliver O'Donovan's uh, stuff. And although it's thick, and so sometimes I'm thinking, I hope by the end of the chapter, I'm going to get it, you know, but um, no, it's really, really rich stuff. I wish I, I could talk a long time about just some rich stuff. But yeah, I, I would recommend biblical critical theory. It's very good. Some. All right. So what future project are you working on uh, that's got you really excited? Well, it's... Um, the, I'm writing a book for Baker Academic uh, called The Whole Life Pastor, Augustinian Reflections on Pastoral Ministry. And I'm taking some of the research that we did for this book um, and, and applying it to sort of a holistic, um, you know, it, it has chapters like the whole person, the whole journey, holy home. You know, it's, it's this holistic, integrative approach to pastoral ministry. The first two chapters were supposed to be one chapter, became two, um, and it's on the totus Christus, the whole Christ. And some of my, one of my heroes, he doesn't seem to like totus Christus very much. I was on the phone with him a few years ago before I'd really done the research myself, and he asked me what I thought about it. And I don't think he had a great opinion, but I I love Totus Christus and uh, Augustine's idea 
Uh, so in the first two chapters, I, I developed this idea of the whole Christ and uh, especially as a reading strategy for reading the Psalms. And um, I think it's very relevant to ministry. Of course, you can take Totus Christus too far. Uh, you need to be prudent in the application of, you know, the head and the body as one on earth. Uh, but I think there are enough uh, good takeaways from it that it's worth the risk. So I'm working on a, a book on pastoral ministry. That's why it's probably good that I'm starting to get back into pastorate um, and, and do some ministry like that again. Love it. Obviously, you've done a lot of reading about St. Augustine uh, in, over the past few years. What has been your favorite book about St. Augustine? Well, Rowan Williams. I love Rowan Williams. I mean, so... Who endorses your book, by the way. Well, yeah, that which was is awesome. fantastic. You know, we were so humbled and uh, surprised and happy that Rowan Williams would endorse it. It was because I love him so much uh, reading... Uh, and the reason that I would say that it's my favorite is because it, it feeds the soul. Rowan Williams' work is, I think that it's very Augustinian in the fact that it's robust uh, intellectually, but he feeds the soul. And so um, I really lo love that book. I, I, I'm going to tell you one uh, other that's unique that um, uh, Dean Sweeney, at Beeson Divinity School. Uh, we were having a dinner and I was sitting beside him and he recommended this book. I went out and got it. Um, it, it was at um, SBL and ETS uh, in November. Uh, J. Pato, Patu, I think is how you pronounce it, Burns' book, Augustine's Preached Theology. And it, it's, it's wonderful. What uh, he's he is um, Burns has gone through Augustine's sermons and teased out his theology and created biblical almost like a biblical theology, but but an Augustinian preaching theology. It's rich, and the subtitle has to do with the body of Christ. It's that sort of whole Christ uh, idea that that emerges in in Augustine's preaching. So. Um, those two are really good, but I just, I love Rowan Williams, um, his stuff. So. Yeah, you can't probably see it on the video, but it's it's on that shelf down there. <laughs> yeah. Mine is, mine is on my shelf right next to me too. Yeah, and yeah. Got, like underlined and this yeah. is, yeah, it's so, so rich. And and um, in my next, in the next book, I chapters one and two, I use Rowan's stuff. Uh, a lot, you know, in uh, appropriating it and applying it to pastoral ministry. All right. So what's a habit or hobby that you have that you consider to be life-giving? I don't know that this is a habit. I mean, a hobby. So maybe in a minute I could talk about hobbies, but this might surprise you. Okay. Remember, I was um, converted in a Baptist church baptized in a Baptist church, ordained in a Baptist church, and presently I'm an elder in a Baptist church. My favorite thing is the Book of Common Prayer. Um, okay, I love the Book of Common Prayer. When, when I talk about it, I talk with enthusiasm and energy because every morning um, 
it's during the school year. I'm up at five o'clock in the morning with a cup of coffee and the Book of Common Prayer doing my morning prayer. And I'm telling you, I'm never happier, more energized. And actually, um, next Monday, I have a dear lady in the church in my in the church I attend, and one of my colleagues who are coming into my office so that I can Baptist, right? Okay, that I so I can show them how to use the Book of Common Prayer. And I've done that. For two other colleagues, they've been sitting in my office. Um, and when I discovered that, and, and actually a friend, an Anglican uh, or an Episcopalian priest gave me my first um, copy, I think it was back in 2015, 2012. And I started using it and uh, not the 2019, obviously, but I, I sort of uh, morphed over into the 2019. I grew up, uh, my ministry grew up in kind of the contemporary NIV language, and I've gotten used to that. I like the 2019. Um, but yeah, that that has to get on your knees. I think the posture too is important. To get on my knees every morning and confess my sin to God has been one of the most transformative uh, acts in my life. And to you know receive that forgiveness and hope of the work of the spirit through the word of God, as you read it, um, you know, saying the Lord's prayer, the apostles creed it was just wonderful. So we should give a shout out to that Episcopalian priest, uh, father Jason Poling, who's That's up it. here in, uh, in the Baltimore area, Episcopal diocese of Maryland. Um, he's a, he's a friend of mine. I, I hang out with him every so often up here and he he's come to services at St. Paul's. I preach for him on good Friday. Well, so. say hello to father Poling because I, uh, I appreciate it so, more, so much. He stayed in our home during a regional ETS meeting. And as a gift, he gave me um, a book of common prayer and I have not looked back. <laughs> I remember we met about it. Remember that was, yeah, yeah that yeah. was a long time ago now, but that was wonderful. And I'm I was still, very surprised yeah. in a good way. Yeah. So that would be my greatest habit. I know for, for you two, that might be just the most common thing, but for me, it was just a uh, just revolutionary. No, it it's so important. I mean, we um, we I do morning prayer every morning, and we do evening prayer usually as a family. But uh, just to be in it, and, and I mean, you, you know how important it is because you're right. It can feel common, it can feel mundane, but you know how great it is when you do miss a day sometime or or one office, and you think, ah, man, the day does doesn't feel right because uh, I haven't done I haven't done my prayers, and so there is something about being habituated. I think it is a habit, yeah, yeah for sure. And it's yeah. like re-narratizing you uh, mm -hmm. in, into a story that you live throughout the day. You live in that. That's a, that's the story you live in, and um, yeah, it's just been. Also, I just I've noticed my personal prayers being less of you know, give me this, give me that, give me, give me, give me, and um, more bowing before mm -hmm. the goodness and, uh, you know, the, the awesomeness of our God and uh, living uh, toward others and for others. It just changes your posture. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really interesting that the tenor of your prayer changes. Um, if, if you're doing morning or evening prayer, you're in the breviary, whichever kind of office tradition you're using, um, your own personal prayers, those sort of more extemporaneous conversational prayers, those 
will change if you're coming from a different place. If that's what you've always known, that's yeah. a different question. But if it's um, you know not been a part of your tradition, it's amazing how much that will change. I had a a parishioner tell me one time uh, they were Presbyterian and had been Presbyterian most of their life, and um, were kind of discovering the the joys mm. of of the daily office and things like that and. They were like, I'm, I'm not praying the same way mm-hmm. as I used to. The language I'm using is different and I'm structuring it without realizing it in a different way. I was like, that's how this, that's, that's how it works. Yeah. Oh yeah. Prayers become very Trinitarian mm-hmm. and beautifully so, beautifully so. And um, yeah. And, and, you know, I think uh, at times a non-denominational, I pastored non-denominational churches and Baptist churches and, or I have a pastor of Baptist churches, actually been an elder in a Baptist church. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's a, a lack of a lot of times of structure, but there's a belief, there's a belief that uh, as Baptists, we got the Bible. Okay. Well, pray the book of common prayer and you will start pray, being in more scripture and you will start praying scripture. Um, you know, someone this morning asked me on a, a specific temptation to pray for them. And I said, I'm praying Galatians 2.20 uh, for you right now. And um, you, you just, you begin to live in sort of the biblical narrative and in uh, scripture. Yeah, it changes, but it, it it's not, it's not overnight. You know, it's like, you have to keep praying it, keep uh, keep in it, and it's amazing the transformative power of of, of, of those practices. I think I, I had a bishop uh, once. The, the epistle reading for the Sunday he was preaching was, I think, the end of Ephesians, and it was the same verse that's at the end of evening prayer. And he said, "Well, it was really nice of Saint Paul to quote the Book of Common Prayer in his <laughs> epistle." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it is. It, it does enmesh us in that in that uh, scripture and tradition, and it's it's beautiful. So, right. well, great. Well, one thing we like to do as we close episodes out is we we like to pick one thing that we're into lately. It can be a book, a movie, uh, yeah. experience, a game, anything. Um, yeah. So, Doctor Allen, what are you what are you into these days? You know, when it, I do listen to the Sacramentalist and love it, it's my favorite po- po- podcast. I am not just saying that. Okay, I am not. Just saying that uh, I love, I guess, because I love you guys. I love Father Wesley knowing, but I think it's, 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 um, it's a pastor's theologians uh, podcast. I think it's rich intellectually and robust in, in ecclesially, right? And so I, I do love it. But this is the scariest question because <laughs> I am I am no like I know Father Wesley, you've been into games. Well, everybody knows I hate games. You know, it's like everybody like you know Mark hates games, and um, so I'm like, what? But you know, I think being in Virginia, what am I into? And it's that time of year. Um, I'm into g- getting outside in nature, especially with my wife Karen. And walking, the rhythm of walking, hiking, being aware of like you know the sounds, the smells, the breeze. Um, I, I you know Karen and I will will uh, fish a little bit 
Uh, we'll sit on on a beach on a lake in Virginia. We'll kayak some, uh, sitting by the campfire. I mean, I guess sitting, floating, and uh, sort of walking, all of these things in nature are just like they re, you know, they invigorate me, calm me down. These are some of the things I miss the most about Virginia because we moved up here to Maryland where it's just flat. Yeah. No foothills, no mountains, no nothing. It's it's just oh, yeah. yeah, a colleague and I, a couple, maybe three weeks ago, um, on finals week. So we have GSAs give the finals. Uh, so uh, we're up on it's, – it's, he said it's the highest point in Virginia. There's a radar tower you might remember remember it. It's not the peaks of otter, but we hiked up up there and then hiked down and wow, it's just sat on a rock up there and ate lunch. Uh, man, that's living. That is living. So uh, yeah, that's what I like. Love it. Love it. Well, Father Creighton said being outdoors recently too. So uh, yeah, you're, you're in good company. Yeah, I think. Good. So Father Creighton, what are you into these days? Uh, I'm just going to say yes to being outdoors. Cause that's just so fun. I'm, I'm, just a, I've been a climber for a long time and I love hiking and backpacking and doing all sorts of things like that. So always get uh, two thumbs up for me uh, for being outside. But my, my, what I'm into is actually ironically not being outside. <laughs> um, no, it's a, it's a bit on the, uh, I guess more lazy side, but um, we, uh, I, I used to love house the, the, the TV show. Yeah. Uh, so like back in, you know, 05, when people still, you know, when we all sat in for appointment television and, and waited for the new episodes to come out, uh, I used to, you know, when, when it started, I started watching it and, uh, you know, I was in high school, so I was just like, this is great. And I hadn't watched it in so long. I watched all of it when it was airing and then hadn't gone back to it or touched it. And on a whim, uh, my wife said, hey, you know, we should watch House. I said, okay. And we've been watching House. Wow. Um, nice. yeah. So, you know, we'll like after dinner or whenever, like um, kind of winding down, we'll get the dog up on the couch and kind of cuddle and watch House. And it's been so fun. It's a That's great awesome. show. Yeah. Back in the day, uh, we, we never miss it, you know. Loved yeah. It. I've got to make a confession. I've never seen any episodes of House. What? Yeah, I know. I know. It's, I, I know I would like it. I just, I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely, it, it's the, me, it, I, I, I say this. In some ways, it's sort of the medical version of like, um, uh, like law and order or something. Yeah. Like there's, if you like the procedural stuff, then you'll, then you'll like it. But it's also, you'll see actors and actresses who, you know, like, this is one of the first things they've done. They're a patient. They're having a very dramatic seizure on the floor. And you're like, oh, my gosh, that's so-and-so. Um, so everyone's, like, on house. Just, like, everyone at some point was in a, on an episode of Law & Order. Um, but it's, yeah. it's really fun. Yeah. Love it. So for me, it's a book. I've been, um, I've been getting a little more interested in the sort of historical development of Mariology. Um, potentially for some some future work uh, that I'm interested in doing, but um, but I picked up a book by Jaroslav Polikin, uh, Mary Through the Centuries, and uh, have been reading that and have found it to be very interesting. 
um, he had a chapter that I just finished on on the Mariology of the Quran, which I thought was actually really fascinating. Um, and in some ways, <laughs> they have a better Mariology than some Christians who I grew up with. But that's a whole other episode, I think. Um, but anyways, have really enjoyed have really enjoyed this book, and uh, yeah, look forward to finishing it. She, it's a he's he's a great writer, of course, and a great historian. And um, so yeah, very interesting to see the doctrines of Mary kind of unfold throughout the the lived and praying life of the church. I think that's uh, very interesting. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Did you did you ever read Jesus through the centuries? I have it. Okay. It's on my shelf. I've never read it, but I have it. It's it's definitely worth a read as well. It's, well, and I, from uh, what I understand in the introduction, this was sort of this book was born out of a lot of the research he was doing for Jesus yeah. through the centuries, and he just kind of had all this extra stuff left over about Mary, so he put it in another book. Yeah. So, yeah, very cool. Well, Dr. Allen, thank you so much for coming on. This was a really lovely conversation. Thank it you. is always so good to get to talk to you. Yeah, I, I appreciate it so much. It's fun. So much fun. So, yeah, it was good to catch up. Well, Thank when you. your book on, on Augustine as pastor comes out, we will we will have you back on again, I, I hope. That'd so. be great. In the interim, if people want to follow you, get more familiar with your work, is there a place they can go for that? Well, there's a... This is, might sound odd. Uh, don't follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I, it would, I only tweet occasionally Bible verses, and it's random. Um, and so that's, I'm not into that or my Facebook page, you would just see my family. And so it's not that interesting. What I would say, uh, go to, to Baker Academic and get the, the Augustine Way or Zondervan Academic for Apologetics of the Cross. Uh, kind of put my, I prefer to sort of put my thoughts out there in a, in a, in a longer narrative and uh, more a co coherent way. The other thing is, you know, we have the new PhD program and if anybody's interested in studying uh, public theology and apologetics, um, that's what I do and, and uh, or the graduate school here, I teach there. And so if you wanna kind of follow what I'm doing, uh, that's, that's those are probably the best, best places to look. I am still, uh, ironically, an apologist for liberty uh, because of the great faculty there. Uh, you know, it, it, publicly, there's obviously been, you know, things that have, pe people have a certain idea of, of what it might be like. But uh, as far as the day-to-day -day and the actual interaction with professors, I am so blessed to have gone there and to have professors like Dr. Allen and, and a number of other um, faculty there who, who work at the school. They're, they're really, it's a fantastic place. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I I tell you, I just dearly love our our faculty there's a there's a deep humility and collegiality and um love and reverence for god and, and the scriptures and uh you know one of my colleagues pops his head in the door and says you know he's working on a, a on a commentary on second peter for cambridge uh uh chad thornhill and uh chad pops his head in he's like yeah i'm just tired of writing right now and I just want to talk and and man we just talk about scripture and God and and uh, the friendships and relationships and I think uh, that's a moment ago I was talking about my philosophy of Christian education I think uh, being formed in an environment like that of you know humble scholarship uh, collegiality 
uh, looking out for each other, enjoying each other. It's, I, and I'm not stretching it because believe me, I've been here over the last seven years and there were some brutal times that were very difficult. One thing that was very consistent is just the, the beauty of my colleagues and working with them. And, um, and I'm glad, very glad I'm here today with them. Mm. Love it. Love it. Well, listeners, buy the book, The Augustine, the Augustine Way, Retrieving a Vision for the Church's Apologetic Witness. And while you're at it, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can always join the communion of Patreon saints for $5 a month. Father Creighton, would you close us with the colic for missions from the prayer book? It's uh, certainly pertinent to many of the themes that we have discussed today. Absolutely. Let us pray. O God, who has made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on the face of the whole earth, and did send thy blessed Son to preach peace to them that are far off and to them that are nigh. Grant that all men everywhere may seek after thee and find thee. Bring the nations into thy fold, pour out thy Spirit upon all flesh, and hasten thy kingdom. Through the same thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Thank you.